considering the circumstances and situation, the attitudes of Habakkuk for actually for several weeks, and uh, decided to go through that in a sermon and show how he dealt with and how God dealt with the situation as it was. And I think that that was a very timely thing for us to consider right now as we wait for things to begin to happen in a more volatile fashion. I was sort of watching what was going on in Portland today to see how that went. It wasn't as big as the last gathering or protest, but uh, well, maybe a hundred on each side, according to the one report that I read. And there were some fisticuffs and some bleeding and so on, but uh, nobody shot or it didn't escalate into anything more than a few fistfights. <coughs> but the attitudes and the emotions and the uh, politics are there for this thing to escalate at some point, somewhere. Uh, in the last 23 years, uh, at one time or another, I've been through probably a vast majority of the Bible by now, verse by verse, uh, and I think that that is a good approach for us to use, uh, and uh, I'm planning on continuing it, because the Word of God is what counts. Uh, it isn't some story or some sermon I might dream up from having been in some place or something. But for us to examine the words of God and perhaps to consider them, expound them, uh, see how we can best fit them to our lives, I think is a very good thing to do. So I decided, at least up to this point, to begin going through the book of Acts in Bible study. We just finished Proverbs up. And the Acts of the Apostles, the things they went through, the things they did, I think would be good for us to consider now since we're in the real end time and they thought they were in the end time then. And uh, much of what they said and experienced and did were very similar to circumstances today in the uh, uh, waning time of the Roman Empire and the oppressiveness that was there that we're beginning to feel now in all Israelite countries. Uh, in Europe, I think it's even a little further advanced than here in terms of what God said with the King of the South and the Islamic world coming against Israel. Well, the whole world ultimately, but that's what's playing out there now with rape and violence and murder and all kinds of things that we've experienced to some degree here, but not like they are there, where it is actually beginning at this point to tear their societies down. So we're entering that period of time that is going to be very, very dangerous. <coughs> so what the apostles did, I think, is good to consider. But for today, we'll start into the book of Romans. Uh, here Paul was writing to those who were at Rome, <coughs> who were converted, and again he reflects on his mission, on his calling, on all that God had been doing, <coughs> and calls on them for certain things. So I think this is a, an important book to consider, and I don't recall having gone through it. And uh, I've been through some of the Gospels 
Revelation, the smaller books of Paul, but I don't recall having gone through Acts or Romans verse by verse. This epistle was written somewhere in the mid-50s A.D., uh, about 20 years after Pentecost in A.D. Uh, 31 or 30. Uh, so, I imagine the church in Rome began sometime after Acts 2, obviously, because all of them did. That was the very beginning of the New Testament church, and everything sprang forth from that. Now, how much some of these nations that are talked about in Acts 2 and in places through the New Testament are talking about the original places over here and how many of them are around the Mediterranean, I don't have a clear handle on yet uh, because there was a lot of transfer back and forth. But I do get the distinct feeling that Paul did go to the Mediterranean area and through those countries that are there because he was to go to the Gentiles primarily and... Uh, This country was settled, probably, if this is correct, and I think it is, that the Ark did land probably on Ararat in Turkey or somewhere near there. So when they came out, they developed a civilization there in the Mesopotamian area, and Nineveh and Babylon and all those cities that were built certainly were built over there, and that's where we're finding the remains. So, that's where that cradle of civilization began, though the first cradle, I do firmly believe, was over here. And that was taken away at the time of the flood. So, when Abraham got here, he already found that the uh, Canaanites had arrived ahead of him. He had stayed over there until God told him to come here. But that hadn't restrained some of the Gentiles from coming back where society originally had been before the flood. So, uh, exactly where all Paul went, uh, we do not know, but I do believe that uh, there had been established some presence, at least in that Jerusalem over there, though it was an Arab city, as well as those Gentile cities around the Mediterranean. So he probably was writing to the true Rome uh, when he wrote this book uh, in Italy. <coughs> so he says, Paul, a servant of Emmanuel, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now notice he says here that he had been called. He did not set himself up as a minister or as an apostle but who had been called to do that. And, of course, he gives detail when he talks about how he was struck down on the road to Antioch, and uh, Christ talked to him there. And then he says, And also separated unto the gospel of God. Now, Christ did go out and teach him, apparently in the deserts of Arabia for three years, in that same context. So he had been struck down, and called, and then separated, and taught, and then turned loose to go preach what he had been taught. The other apostles had been taught, of course, uh, by Christ himself prior to his death and resurrection, but Paul came afterward. But he still had that calling and that 
separation that God had made according to the gospel of God. Now, the reason I emphasize this is that we have so many in the so-called, at least in the church today, who have decided that they need to be ministers, or that they need to be prophets, or they need to be apostles, or whatever name, title, or moniker they take under themselves. And there are scriptures that say, do not do that. I'm not going to go to them right now, but you've heard them all, and I've read them to you uh, when we start talking about government. So anybody who does that is an imposter. Uh, that calling must be from God. That ordination and that separation has to be from Him and those whom He has separated out ahead of time. And if it doesn't come through there, then it is self-appointed. And I would hate to face Christ having had appointed myself. Uh, that would be a scary proposition. <laughs> and just, uh, let's don't go there. which he had promised before time by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he refers immediately back to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, Moses, Psalms, about the references to Christ as being the Son of God and who would come and be born and live and die. Many, many prophecies are in the Old Testament about Christ's coming. So he refers these people back to that. This isn't uh, a new religion he's establishing. This is the religion, the truth of God, based on the Old Testament. And he'll have quite a little to say about that in chapter 3 and on, as to who has valid control of what. But he has to establish, writing to these Gentiles, that the Old Testament, which was what? Given to Israel. Uh, is the basis for true religion. So he's establishing his authority <coughs> based on what the prophets of old in Israel had given because there was a race problem. Just as there are race problems today, there were then. Uh, the Jews looked down on anybody that wasn't a Jew and the Gentiles looked down on the Jews. So, he had to walk somewhat of a tightrope in dealing with these things because of feelings. Uh, we're all pretty well familiar with those, I think, with the racial strife and animosity and everything that we have gone through in this country as a result of, of slavery and other things that have caused that. Uh, those racial divides have always been there and were there before slavery ever occurred in this country, we go way, way, way back. I mean, just the divide between Israel and Ishmael, or the Arabs, essentially, goes all the way back to Isaac and, and uh, Ishmael, and the problems between Jacob and Esau go all the way back there, and they're still here today. So it's, it's, it's not all just because of slavery in America that these great racial divides are there, and that's just two in point, but many, many nations hate each other. India and Pakistan, for instance. I mean, you can go on and on. But this is according to Scripture. That God had worked through those Israelite prophets and had brought the message of Christ through them. 
So he says, you're going to have to accept somebody who is not of your blood or of your race. They came through those hated Jews, if you will. Not just the Jews, but uh, all Israel. So he says, concerning his son, we'll call him Emmanuel as we do today, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So he, he rams it in a little further there. The Christ was in the lineage of David, who was uh, of the tribes of Israel, a Jew. And his lineage, of course, is given there in Matthew and Luke. So he's establishing to these Gentiles right off the bat that they're going to have to listen to a Jew. Uh, it wasn't a real popular concept in that day. And declared to be the Son of God with power, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. <coughs> Excuse me. The, uh, the power of the resurrection was a great power. That's something that uh, is not seen very often. <laughs> uh, people die and they don't get resurrected. Uh, that's just not the normal state. There have been seven uh, in biblical history that are recorded, plus Christ himself and those who came up at his resurrection. So eight instances at least in history and precious few people. So, uh, that's a pretty good power, resurrection from the dead. And of course, if we believe Scripture, everybody is going to get resurrected. So, so far, it's been very, very rare, but it's going to become a very, very common thing. If it happens to everybody, that's pretty common. Whether it's to spirit or back to physical life to have their chance or whatever. <coughs> But do we believe in that kind of power that could cause the dead to be resurrected? I've been around a lot of dead animals, dead bodies, farming, ranching, whatever, pets, and people in my life. And you know, when I've examined what was left, it was pretty dead. There's no life there. It's just gone. It's, it's, uh, and everything starts almost immediately to begin to rot. And that's the way it is. So, let's understand that somebody has to be there far, far bigger than we are for resurrection to occur. And it has to be the power of holiness. God's power. Satan can't do that. He hasn't been given that power. The Spirit of God through holiness, was able to resurrect Christ as an example for the rest of us who will also be resurrected. By whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now, it was through Christ that the apostles were appointed, trained and appointed, and it was through Christ specifically who called, trained, and appointed Paul. So his credentials are squeaky clean. Uh, we have received grace, that is, pardon that we didn't deserve, and he's quick to show that in other places in his Gospels, that uh, he didn't deserve what he got. Uh, he was killing Christians and egging on others to kill more. 
so he said, it's not my righteousness or my holiness, but God gave me mercy, forgiveness, grace, and then an apostleship, highest uh, office in the church. For obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now, there's a reason for apostles. There's a reason for offices in the church. And those are laid out uh, by Paul as uh, being there for the inspiration, the teaching, the guidance uh, of the saints, so that we might learn the things of God through those he's trained to help expound and teach his word. Notice he mentions obedience here right away in the book of Romans. People will use some sections of Romans and Galatians and other things that Paul wrote to try to show that the law is a very bad thing and you don't have to obey it. But obedience has to do with the law. If there was no law, no rule, you wouldn't need to obey. In Germany, they have no speed limit on the freeways, the Autobahn. You can drive 100 miles an hour all day long if you want to. Not a problem. I used to could drive 100 miles an hour in Nevada and uh, Montana. No problem whatsoever. Wave at the cop and he waved back. That was allowed. Now there's a law. And if you break that law now, uh, they'll give you a ticket for it. So there is not obedience required unless there is a law. And if there's a law, then obedience is required. So when he says obedience to the faith, then that means you must be following some structure of law. We'll see later what that is. And then among whom, speaking of the apostles, are you also the called of Emmanuel? So he says, he called us, the apostles, we were called to go teach you about him. And now you are also among the called. Remember John said there in chapter 6, verse 44, no man can come except the Spirit of the Father call him. People cannot just come to the truth on their own. Now, they may study the Bible a lot, and they may come up with a certain amount of truth simply by exposure to it, but they're not going to get the spirit and the intent and the overall plan of God out of it. They just can't find it. it is, it's the, the Spirit of God has not opened their mind to understand. There were some very, very high IQ, brilliant men who wrote volumes and volumes of commentary about the Bible. And you know what? I don't know what percentage, but anywhere from 60 to 90 percent of it is just spiritual drivel, gobbledygook, uh, based on Protestant thinking, which has nothing to do with the Bible itself, actually. Well, there's a lot of historical stuff, so I, I won't say it's all bad, but there's a very, very broad mixture of false doctrine based on their prejudices and not understanding the Bible. Brilliant though they were. 
I don't know how many people there are, but I have heard of people who have the Bible actually memorized word for word, and you quote anything you ask them to. Pick it right out of the air. But they don't understand any of it. (laughs) They just can say it. You wouldn't learn much truth in the Baptist, the Methodist, Church of Christ, or Catholic Church, did you? No. But now you open it anywhere. Can't you? Can't you open this book anywhere and pretty much understand what you're reading and tie it to the skeleton of the truth of God? It fits somewhere on that 7,000-year plan for what He's done on this earth. You can. You have that capacity now. You didn't before. So you are called according to His name. And having been called, you are now in a position that you need to be chosen. Because He called many, and He's choosing some from that. So we need to be moving forward in grace and knowledge and overcoming so that we can be among those who are not only called, but chosen to be the bride of Christ. Because that's what we're called for. Make no mistake. We're not called just to be good people or just so that we can say we have more understanding than anybody else in the world. No, we're called for the purpose of the sorting of those who have been called to see which of them will be the final number of the 144,000 and be the bride of Christ. That's the goal and purpose for which we're here. Not just to be church members. You can do that anywhere, any church, and not have the calling of God to be the bride of Christ. There are some Protestants who mistakenly think they've been called to that, but they haven't, and they don't even understand really what it's all about. So you have a special calling, and that makes you special. Not because you're special, but because you have a special calling. And then we are supposed to become special. By living up to that calling, then we become special. Do you think Christ is going to marry anybody that is not special to Him? No, we've got to be special to Him. You, most of you have been married at some time or another. Did you find somebody that was more special to you than somebody else was? I mean, there were a lot of men and women out there, a lot of boys and girls. Why did you marry the one you married? Because it was the only one that would marry you? No, wait a minute. <laughs> no, because somehow, some way, you follow them as special above others. So, uh, Christ is the same way. He wants special human beings who've been called and trained and have become special through overcoming and growing so that they become the apple of his eye. Lots of trees, lots of apples on a tree. But certain ones are the apple that his eye catches, ones that he wants. I was looking at the apple tree up there this morning. A lot of apples there, a lot falling on the ground that aren't ripe yet. And uh, I looked them over pretty good. 
to see which one might be the ripest and would taste the best before I picked one. Picked a few peaches and ate them. But I, you know what the ones I picked? I picked the ones that the birds had already eaten one half the side off of. Because I figured the bird could tell which ones were the ripest, so I could eat the other side. And I, I did pretty well that way. So, thinking back, those peaches didn't really look as good as the others, because one side was already gnawed off. But they were special because they were riper. Now, I don't know how God looks at us, and we've been gnawed on some, but uh, He is making us special. That's the point. We weren't special. He says He called the weak and the base, those which were not special in any way, fashion, or form, except for rare instances like maybe Paul, who was pretty high in society. But most of us were nothing. Just average, run-of-the-mill people. Nothing special. That he's making something special of us. <clears throat> for his sake. <clears throat> so, we need to get that ingrained in our minds, that we are here to be, to be, to become special to him. Not for self-righteousness. Not so we can pat ourselves on the back because we're such good Christians. But to be made acceptable to the God of the universe. So he lets them know that even though they're Gentiles, they too had been called. Out of the Jews and the Israel, for the most part, the Jews, the Gentiles, were the lowest of the low. The nickname for them was dogs. They didn't accept them as people. They were dogs. Now, that's the way a lot of Americans were toward black people from Africa. Apes, monkeys, it's about the same thing. Dogs, unclean animals. And I'm not saying that to be racist. I'm just saying those are, those are nicknames that came to be because people despised somebody else and looked upon them as less than human. Well, that's exactly the way the Jews looked at the dogs. I mean, the Jews looked at the Gentiles and called them dogs. Less than human was the way they looked at them. So Paul is saying, no, it's not that way. I may be coming preaching to you of Christ a Jew, and I may have been ordained by a Jew, but if I've been called as an apostle, you've also been called, Gentile though you may be. And he will get into that in detail later on, but he introduces it briefly here. The race has nothing to do with Christianity. Nothing whatsoever to do with Christianity. Any human being on the earth, no matter what race they are, can be converted to truth and be called of God. He introduces it here gently, but he'll get into it in detail later on and uh, get on people who do not accept it. So then he, after this introduction, he introduces uh, who he was writing to. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God. Now, he builds on this a little bit. You're Gentiles. I know you've been called dogs. But you're called of God. And you are beloved of God. 
Now that tells us what our attitude should be toward any race of people anywhere around the globe. That they are all beloved of God. God so loved the whole world, all of mankind, that he sent his only begotten Son. Not just Israel. He called Israel because of Abraham's faith, or called those who would come after Abraham as Israelites, because Abraham obeyed him. Now, had Abraham been of a different race, Israel would have come from a different race of people because he was the only faithful one around, and he happened to be from Shem, Semitic, white. Now, God had that all planned, and, but how do you know? Maybe God knows from genetics and whatever, but he's known a lot of us from, our, from the womb. But how do you know who's going to be faithful and true? Even God doesn't know that. Are we aware of that? He can know all, but he sits back and ponders our hearts. He, he calls us and gives us opportunity, and then he sits back and waits to see who will respond and who will not. If he knew all along who would be all of those in the 144,000, why call the rest of us and put us through this? He didn't know. And that tells you right there that predestination has nothing to do with whether you would be in the kingdom of God or not. Predestination is described in the Bible by Paul later on, not in Romans, but in another book. Describes to be called. God was looking for certain types to call. Some he called from the womb because he saw their genetic makeup and he thought, you know, there's, there's a pretty good chance that one will make it. I'm going to call them, and for a special purpose, some of them, like Jeremiah or whoever. He did that. But he didn't know who would be faithful and who would not until we live our lives. We're not judged now, are we? Now, we're being judged now. Judgment is now on the house of Israel, the spiritual Israel. It'll come on others later. But he's having to make decisions that we're going to be the bride of the Lamb. And he says he called many. Many would have an opportunity, in other words. But some will be chosen and others will not. So he's doing a sorting process as he ponders our hearts and minds and actions. Now he pondered Paul's. And he thought, now there's somebody I can use, but it's going to take some work. So he struck him blind and knocked him over on the road and started working him over pretty good. <laughs> Here's this vain, pompous Jew of the Sanhedrin that needs to be humbled so he can be of use to me. Boy, did he work him over. And even left him throughout his life with apparently an eye ailment of some kind that was not only di difficult for him to live with, but wasn't very pretty to look at either. So he had to keep, not only humble Paul, but keep him that way and keep the people that listened to him that way. Because it was repugnant 
apparently, from the way it's described. So, beloved of God, you Gentiles, called saints, to be is not in the Greek, called saints. You don't have to be made a saint by the Catholic Church and a bunch of cardinals dipping in unholy water. Uh, you're a saint if you're a baptized, begotten child of God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the eternal Emmanuel. So God's attitude toward us is grace and peace. He's not there trying to get us, trying to find an excuse not to use us. He's trying to show His mercy and His love and forgiveness so He can use us in spite of ourselves. That's His attitude. It's an attitude of, of pardon, of mercy, of goodwill, and peace. He wants peace between us and Him. <clears throat> and the way we acted and lived in this day and age destroyed the peace between us and God, and then He spewed us out, and now we're seeking to regain peace with Him, to heal the breach, to heal that which was wrong. And Habakkuk said that he who hears this, run. It's a time of urgency. It is very near. Uh, God's judgment of us, finally, is very near. So, it's urgent that we, upon whom the ends of the earth have come, read those prophecies that have to do with right now. It is urgent that we be busy going about our Father's business. And His business is preparing a bride for His Son. Uh, we may not all be in the ministry. We may not all, not all be, let's say, in that sense, actively involved in the physical work here to be done. But the spiritual work of becoming like Christ is something there that we all are called to do and to be. So you are, you are a very part of the work of God. And how you treat each other then shows whether or not you're getting the point. Because Christ has mercy and love and peace toward all of us, and He wants us to be that way toward each other. So there's where the work comes. The work is preparing the bride for Christ. And that is which is most important now because that's what He tells, tells us in Zechariah 3 and 4 and 6 and in Revelation 11. That... Getting the church ready, preparing the bride, is the number one job. Later on, a witness that God is God will go out to the world. But right now, He is interested by far more in getting us ready to be Christ's bride and be ready for the first resurrection. That's His biggest number one interest. The warning to the world isn't going to do the world any good from the standpoint of conversion. They will utterly reject it all and ultimately kill the ones who are bringing the message, as is as the want of Gentile kings. Always has been. So, 
He is focused on the apple of his eye. It is the church that he will suddenly come to his temple there in Malachi, that he is working with first and foremost. If the bride isn't ready, it's not time to come back. You've got to get the bride ready. The world will be warned and then killed, basically, come up the second resurrection. Then they'll be called, but not until. So let's let's understand not how important we are, but how important Christ having a bride is, and then just be utterly thankful that we have been called to be a candidate for that and do everything we can to fulfill that calling. We'll preach the Word of God and the baby can play with herself. Uh, we, we Sometimes I notice we go on a baby watch here. She wants to coo and giggle and play, so everybody says, oh, let's look at the baby. This is what's important for us, not twittering and chuckling among ourselves and whispering little things back and forth. The Word of God is what we're here for. <coughs> Babies don't know that, you know. So I don't hold them accountable. I know things can be distracting, but uh, we need to we need to get on with the Word of God. So he says, verse eight. First, I thank my God through Emmanuel for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. So here again, uh, he's trying to close this racial divide to some degree or another by thanking God. Here's a Jew of the Sanhedrin thanking God for them. So that had to make them feel a little bit warm and toasty right there, that here this Jew isn't calling us dogs anymore. He's thanking God for us. Oh, wow. That's pretty neat. I, I think it's important that we understand how he's writing and who he is writing to and it helps us understand, then, the dynamics of what's going on. And in our relationship to people of the world as well, and especially those who are called into the church, there was a time in Worldwide Church of God, not because of Herbert Armstrong, uh, local ministers maybe to some degree, but particularly in the South, it was because of society around us that we had segregation in the church of God. Some of you can probably remember when some of that went on. Uh, the blacks had to sit. Why did we put them in the back? Because that's what the Protestants in the South did. Why didn't we put them in the front if we had to be segregated? Paul might have. You know that? If Paul had had to do that because of something Rome said, I expect you to put him in the front because he's the one that wrote if they come in in poor clothing and don't look good put them in front and put all these rich folks that are all dressed to the nines in the back basically what he said so I think he was of a mind that he would have put these people in front had there had to be a racial division so I think we went about that wrong too <coughs> Uh, but it wasn't prejudice on the part of the church in that sense, but it was 
It was to keep riots from breaking out if they saw us intermingled, just like at schools at the time. But that doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of racial tension. It wasn't as bad in the church, I, I'll have to say that, because I was there in Miami. Uh, it seemed like we all got along wonderfully at all our socials and everything that we did. Uh, we didn't ever have to have segregation there when I was there in the 60s. But in some places in Mississippi, Alabama, I think some of it was still going on even then. So he thanks God for these Gentiles, for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. So he gives them credit that their faith in God is worthwhile and it's being commented on. People here and there are saying they appreciate that you having been called are going forward in faith and becoming true Christians. That's quite a compliment. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. So he mentioned the church at Rome and other Gentile churches whom he was serving in his prayers. So he makes it personal here as well. Uh, you people are of a different race than I am, but I'm praying for you just like I would anybody else. Making requests, if by any means, now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. Not only do I pray for you, I want to come see you. I want to mix with you. I want to mingle with you. I want to pray with you and teach you and socialize with you. Uh, to be no divide there, no racism. We're seeing a lot of the mind of God here reflected through Paul's beginning of his address to these people. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to the end you be established. I'm concerned for your spiritual welfare, and I want to come and preach Christ's gospel to you and everything I can about God and, and His plan so that you might be even better established in the truth. Because the better, the more we know, the more we understand, the more we're established in it, the better chance we have of following it. So he wanted to be sure that they were successful as Christians. Now, Paul is one who said, we must have the mind of Christ. So what he was saying here is, I have the mind of Christ, and I want to impart that to you. Now, none of us have the mind of Christ completely, and Paul didn't either. He still looked upon himself as a human wretch. But he did have the spirit and the mind of God. And that's being reflected here. And what he's saying reflects how God thinks. So he says, That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. We're in this together. No matter what race, what creed, what past religion, uh, now we have the truth and we are together in the bond of the Spirit to comfort one another. Not to put each other down, not for one to look like they're better than the other, as race was divided then and is today, but to comfort each other together. I went to, uh, oh, what was his first name? Alexander was, I think, his last name. 
a black man in the Miami church. He had, some of you might have known him way back then. That was in the 60s, but he had, he had uh, two gold teeth in front, and each one of them had a star in it, a white star sticking through. Had the biggest, broadest smile, friendliest guy. His wife was a sweetheart. His kids were wonderful. And I, and I, I just loved the man. And I went to his house one day and knocked on the door. I'd never been there before. I knocked on the door and he came out and he was all alarmed. He says, get out of here. Get out of here now. He says, my neighbors may kill you. He was dead serious. <laughs> so, before he was called, he was probably one of his neighbors. You know? But how that mind had changed. Kermit Alexander was his name. How that mind had changed from being like his neighbors on either side of him. And I was very, very unwelcome in that neighborhood. I was fat, dumb, and happy. I didn't know. I just knew I knew Kermit Alexander. He's a nice guy and I wanted to go see him. I didn't know what I was running into. I found out. But I went there to be comforted together with him and his family. But his neighbors would not allow that. Paul ran into that too. He killed in Rome ultimately. <laughs> you know. I would not have you ignorant, brethren, in verse 13, that oftentimes I purposed to come to you, but was hindered or kept from it. I, I, I really have been wanting to come see you, but I can't get there. Close. And he said, I want to do the same thing to you, uh, but I keep getting prevented. He even mentioned that, where was it he was headed one time? He says, but Satan prevented me, and I, so I couldn't get there. He went through shipwrecks and stonings and little stuff like that that didn't allow him to get where he always wanted to go. Then he says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. That could be a little bit puzzling. How was he... What did he owe the Greeks and the barbarians? He owed them the same thing he owed the Jews. The gospel of truth. He had been called of God to be primarily the apostle to the Gentiles, so he owed them that. Christ had said, this is your job, you go do it. That created a debt. It created something that he owed them, was the gospel of Christ. So he was in debt to them. We might not think of it that way, but if you put something on your visa, you're in debt to some bank somewhere. And that is because they had invited you to do something. That is, give them your money. And then you have to pay that back. Now, God had invited him to do something, commanded him to do something, so that created a debt that had to be filled. To the wise and the unwise. You know, he could only lead a horse to water. Some would be stupid and others would be wise. And you don't know ahead of time. You just give it to everybody that shows up and some will hear and some will not. 
So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. I desire very deeply, as much as my heart, mind, body, and soul can will, to be there and talk to you. He's spending quite a little time here establishing a warm relationship with these people and expressing how he feels toward them. Uh, that's important. Because if, they, if he had not done that and they had just started out with a diatribe against you ungodly Gentiles, he wouldn't have gotten very far. You know? He had to address them and make them know that he cared for them and was friendly to them and what he was bringing was of God and it was important for them. So he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. Now we in the church were a little bit ashamed. I don't know that it was ashamed per se, but it came across that way because, as I've cited before, we wouldn't even admit that we were from the Church of God. We were told to present this card, I'm from Ambassador College, for fear of persecution of the world. Well, isn't that... That's not being bold and shameless, is it? I think it was tantamount to being a little bit ashamed of what we were doing. We didn't go out there and say, I'm from the Church of God. I represent the truth of God. Would you like to talk about it? Well, you must, because you wrote in and asked for it. We'd have been better off to have been that way. Now, would we receive more persecution sooner? Maybe. But do you think many people were long fooled? I went to a, a house where there was a lady... And I'm not sure now whether it was her sister or another lady next door. But they wanted to visit together. They were both reading and interested. So I go up and give them my little Ambassador College card. And we talk about the Bible. Now, how long do you think that lady's husband was fooled by this Ambassador College card? Not very long. Because after that visit, he sent a message that if I ever showed up at his house again, I'd be shot. Because I wasn't going to teach that heresy to his wife and whoever the other lady was. He died of a heart attack real soon after that. I think within a week or two. Then I went back steering. He didn't shoot me then. He was gone. I don't know whether that had anything to do with it or not, but I don't discredit that as possibility. God was calling that woman and those women and he wasn't going to let anybody interfere. That's why he even tells you if your husband or wife interferes with you obeying God, boot them out. Divorce them. You're not bound to them anymore according to his word because they are preventing you from preparing for your marriage to a much more important marriage than a human one. And that takes precedence. He doesn't allow divorce for much reason in the New Testament. But for that, he does. It's a spiritual marriage that is more important than physical. And if the physical does interfere, then you are free to leave and with no guilt. 
so he wasn't ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He didn't say, I'm from the uh, College of uh, the Apostles of the School of the Olive Tree in Jerusalem or something, whatever. I'm here to preach the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes. What could be more important than that? Why, why tiptoe around the tulips about that? It's the most important thing on earth. And then he says, to those that believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. So he's saying, uh, it was given to the Jews first. They're the example. They're the seed of Abraham. And as a result of his faithfulness, I've stayed faithful to them in spite of themselves. And uh, it's first to them, and then it's to you, but it does come to you. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, what he's saying there in context is, actually, that you people, being Gentiles, are going to have to accept the idea that God did work through the Jew first. So he's saying, I love you, God loves you, you're called, you're now part of the brotherhood, and you're saints. But, you're go- but if you've got any racial issue there, you're going to have to swallow it because God did come through Christ and through the Jews first, through the line of David, which he's already established. So he says, I realize that there can be some problems here. So, come to grips with it and face it and realize that you can't look down on anybody. The Jews have looked down on you. I'm sorry. I don't. I'm a spiritual Jew and I don't look down on you anymore. I did, but I don't anymore. And now you can't be put off by me, a Jew, or anybody else having received it first because that's just the way God did it. You know? However God does something is what we accept. God's doing it. His call. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from the faith of the Jew to the faith of the Gentile. That's what he's saying. That's the context here. From my faith to your faith. That means that we both have faith in God. So that counts as us being able to bond as brothers and be comforted together. Faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And I read that last Sabbath morning is the reason I went back to Habakkuk, because that's where it's quoted from. The just shall live by his faith, as Habakkuk puts it. And Habakkuk is talking about this end-time church right now, and living by faith. So Paul says, you better listen to what Habakkuk said and live by faith. Trust in God. Will he find faith when he returns? It's going to be a very, very rare commodity. Nobody will be trusting in God and believing that his words, these words, are true and will come to pass. Hardly anybody will believe that. Most will have accepted the beast and the false prophet by then. And 
many in the church will turn away and not endure to the end and persecute and have each other killed in the tribulation that is to come. So, to be true, you better learn to have faith and trust in God, in these words, and that He is God. And we'll see here, I'm about out of time, but He goes into that now. The just shall live by faith, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. There are some, even now, who hold the truth, at least a large part of it, but in righteousness, unrighteousness. How do you lie and steal and defraud about having a deed when you had nothing but a lease? It's just an outright, bald-faced lie. Now, these people are holding to some of the truth in total unrighteousness because their actions are liars, thieves, fraudsters. It's that simple. It's a warning for us. May we not be that way. But we see it around us right here and throughout the church, not just here. The wrath of God is reserved from that. That's why he says they're all going into the tribulation and die there. Better repent first, I hope, because I love them. Sat at the table a lot with them. Enjoyed them as people till they became warped and perverted. God does not like righteousness, and He doesn't like having the truth held by those who will be unrighteous. Hypocrites, in other words. Because that which may be known of God is manifest uh, to them, for God has showed it to them. So He says there are people who know that there is a God. There are people who have truth, but they're not following it. And that's scary. You're better off not to have the truth at all than to have the truth and live a lie. Then you're in trouble. Now, he says, God has showed it to them. Now, let's understand how we know who God is. This is very, very important and very clear here. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What He's saying there is that this earth and the stars and the universe that we look out at are irrefutable proof that there is a God who is sovereign over all and that nothing that is here could be here without that. So he's saying, you don't see me. I'm in the, on my throne on the sides of the north. You don't see me. But you see what I have caused to be made by my Son. And without Him was nothing made. <clears throat> so he says, if you look at this earth around you, and you can't grasp from that, that there is an all-powerful God who could make this, you're a total fool. How can you look 
at the things on this earth that are so interdependent one upon the other in so many symbiotic relationships where this bug and this plant could not exist without each other. Uh, There's millions of those relationships. They couldn't have evolved over time. It's crazy. They all had to have been created close enough together to have immediately gone into their roles of serving each other. There could be no other way. I mean, Ted Armstrong spent thousands of hours on the radio and television talking about that, and I got tired of it because he refused to preach the gospel. Uh, I didn't get tired of understanding the importance of God's creation and understanding who He is. I didn't get tired of that. I just wanted him to preach the rest of the Bible. And he wouldn't do that, I think, for some very personal reasons. We won't go into that. But God is saying here that they have no excuse, no valid excuse. They use this evolution thing as their excuse. Now, it couldn't have evolved. It's just so simple. It could not have happened. How did a squirrel throw nuts out of a tree if he was developed before the tree? Or vice versa. You know, it goes on and on and on. Squirrels would have starved to death first year. Anyway, they're without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now let's look at this nation, since this is being written as an end-time instruction. Look at this nation from that viewpoint. When the people came over from England and Europe, they basically viewed themselves as Christians. They didn't understand the truth. Some of them understood some of it. Some understood the holy days and the Sabbath and kept it in Rhode Island and other places. So some of them actually even had the truth of God to one degree or another. I don't know how many doctrines they understood but feasts and Sabbath and no pagan holidays, which they didn't keep either, are some of the very foundational things that we learned when we first started learning the truth. So, they were in this category when they came here of having known God to one degree or another. And over time, we got further and further and further from that until there were no Sabbath and peacekeepers basically left. And we got further and further from God as a nation and weren't thankful to Him anymore. How much time does our nation as a whole spend thanking God for everything He's done to us for us in comparison to our military personnel or others that we look to as having helped us and saved us. I, I think God probably gets the short end of that stick. In God we trust, we say. No, we don't. We don't even know who He is. Most of us don't even recognize it as God anymore. One nation under God? Are you kidding? 
That's basically all gone now. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. We are in a nation today that is pretty much unchristian and has a darkened heart. That's our society. Still have the name Christian, some of them, but the newer generations, the younger people, they're leaving religion by, in droves unless they hook on to some emotional evangelical thing that gets them all hyped up or something. But for the most part, and that doesn't have anything to do with God, really. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They look upon Darwin and Huxley and some of those guys as wise. Oh, they were so smart. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And it wasn't this way even when I was a kid, but it is now, where animal life, bird life, is more to be respected, honored, and protected than human life. We've come that far down. So this prophecy was about today. They don't worship the Creator anymore. It's Mother Gaia. We used to call it Mother Nature, but now it's Gaia after some of the pagan ancient gods. So we worship those things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Here he's going to start talking about homosexuality. Because that is the way it has occurred in this nation, Right? First of all, we began to believe and teach evolution. So, whatever concept of God and creation there was became severely diminished because of the evolutionary theory. And then we began to slide into homosexuality after that. Just in the exact order, he says, When you lose track with God and He made male and female and made them to be married and to have families and to represent types of the kingdom of God in Christ and His bride, when you begin to lose that, you're descending into utter depravity, which is where we are today. I remember my first cognition of it, I think, was Tiny Tim back in the 60s, singing, Tiptoe to the Tulips with me. Little fairy-looking guy with long hair. Oh, it was sickening. But that, it became publicly manifested through his singing. Well, singing, I'll, I'll, I'll dignify it, Dad. To exchange the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creation or the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. For this cause, God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unfitting, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet, such as Abe's. Is there any question how God feels about the gay movement? If you're an incorporated church, 
you can't say these things because they can shut your church down. Since we're a free church, they can't legally do that. They can try, but they can't legally do it. But this is, this is a progression. You begin to worship the creation and you forget God. And if you forget God, you forget all His rules and His laws. And somehow your mind gets so perverted, I don't understand and I do not even want to, how a man can desire the body and the anus of other men. That is just so bizarre, so weird, so twisted, and unnatural. And women, the same way. But it's not just a few anymore. It's everywhere. And they're getting legal rights from the government to be that way, and even to marry. What an abomination in the eyes of God. Just utter abomination. You think this isn't talking about today? Paul encountered it in his day and had to talk to these people at Rome about it because it had gotten going there. And now we see it here. Fifty years ago wasn't really much of an issue. hundred years ago, hardly ever heard of it. It was going on to some degree, but it was kept very quiet, very private, and was looked down upon, and there were laws against it. Now that's all just gone. It's just normal. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not fitting. It's a twisted, perverted mind. It's not normal. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, cancer of society, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, won't keep their word, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. That's a pretty good list of evils that have come out of all this and that are due to worshiping Mother Earth and homosexuality leads to all of these things. And look at our society today and are not we full of verse 29 through 31. That pretty well is a microcosm of our world today. Who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Anybody who worships any god but God, the earth itself, is worthy of death. Anybody who is a homosexual is worthy of death. That's the penalty for that, according to God's judgment. But not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. I don't like gay jokes. I hear one once in a while. To me, it's sickening. But they're everywhere because there's so much of it, and people, in a way, are ridiculing them with the gay jokes in some cases. But it's still laughing about something that is abominable. And it's all through the movies and 
television. The sitcoms are full of it. Do we watch that as entertainment? I hope not. Not only the ones that do it, but the ones that enjoy the jokes about it and the sitcoms about it and the little fairies that are running all over the TV screen and the movie screens. That's not entertainment. That's abomination. If you watch it, you're becoming abominable. How does this stuff spread? How does it get worse? Because they're exposed to it all the time, and then they begin to think it, and then they begin to do it. If you're exposed to evil, over time you become evil. So he's, he's saying, look people, I'm a Jew, and you're Gentiles, I love you anyway, and God's called you, and you're saints, but don't do what the world around you is doing. Accept the true God and His sovereignty, except that this is His creation and proves He's God, and don't go queer on us. That's the opening part of the Book of Romans. 